0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotron.com slash agony. Christopher Paolini was 15 years old when he began writing the international bestseller Aragon. The sequel, Eldest, was recently re-released in a limited edition, a movie Aragon based on the novel, opened in December 2006. Welcome to the program, Chris.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Chris, I'd like to talk first a little bit about your background. Um, You grew up in Big Sky country, and you were homeschooled. Tell me a little bit about why your family made that decision, as far as you know, and how you participated in that decision to, to be homeschooled.
1: Well, my mother was a trained Montessori teacher, and when my sister and I were born, she started uh you know doing lessons with us and projects and basically teaching us at home and by the time that we were old enough to enter first grade we were already several grades ahead and because of that and because of the fact that the schools wanted to bump us back uh to where our you know where someone of our age level we would be normally my parents, after discussing the issue for quite a while, uh, made the decision that they would homeschool. And it was a big decision because it meant that at any given time, at least one parent had to be home all the time and couldn't be working. Uh, later on, of course, you know, we, my sister and I did have the choice about whether or not we wanted to continue homeschooling. Uh, it was actually a threat that my mom would use sometimes. Well, if you want, we can send you off to public school. <laughs> and that always made us work harder on our homework.
0: Tell me a little bit about growing up in Big Sky Country. Were you even close to your school? I mean, was it, it seemed like maybe location to the school might have been an issue.
1: It, it was, to a certain degree. Uh, the elementary school was several miles away, and then the high school was about 20 miles away, which uh, isn't horrible in Montana, but when you have to drive that early in the morning in winter, it, it begins to get uh, uh, pretty bad. It's a beautiful country, though. We live, you know, right by the Yellowstone River, right along the Beartooth Mountains. If any of your listeners have heard or seen the movie A River Runs Through It, that was filmed about five miles from our house. So it is just gorgeous, gorgeous country filled with wildlife, and all of that certainly contributed to my own love of, you know, the natu- natural beauty, and uh, I try to incorporate that in my writing.
0: When you're growing up and homeschooling, you're not around other kids, so tell me a little bit about how you socialized. Did you use the internet?
1: <laughs> uh, trying to trying to think how to answer that because um, we we did socialize because there were you know there were homeschooling groups in the area that we were involved in uh, for a number of years. Uh, but um, you know, mainly my sister and I we, we invented games for ourselves. We would go outside and you know, like Tom Sawyer or something, you know, we'd run up and down the river and we'd uh we'd make, you know, we'd make things, we'd we'd invent the rules for games, we'd tell stories to each other and act them out uh as a way of entertaining ourselves. And of course, we we read books. We read lots and lots of books. Uh, Our house, because of the way the mountains are, we actually did not get any television reception while we were growing up. Wow, how lucky. (laughs) Exactly. That's how I feel about it. Uh, So what we would do is we would go to the local library and just about every week, week and a half, we would uh, check out a huge pile of books and plow through those and go back and get another pile of books and... Uh, it was a it was a wonderful education uh in addition to our our regular schooling
0: now what did your parents do if, if you from such a remote location i mean uh, what kind of what kind of business did they run
1: my parents did all sorts of things and it was always their challenge to try and find jobs in such a remote location to that would allow them to work at home and keep the family together my parents have always put family first and they've sacrificed a great deal to tr- keep the family together as much as possible. And that's actually how we sort of ended up falling up into, falling into writing. And that's why I actually looked at writing as a, as a potential career at one point, you know, uh, early on, was because it was something that allowed me to to work at home instead of, you know, just going off and having to drive hundreds of miles to get to one job or another.
0: Tell me a little bit about... What books you chose to read and what books were suggested to you when you were going to the library at that early age?
1: When I was young, I read a lot of uh, books like uh, The Happy Hollisters, Ramona, those sorts of books. Uh, As I started growing up a little, then, then, you know, it was the Tom Swift books. It was the Nancy Drew books. Uh, and then, and a lot of folk tales from various different cultures retold for young adults. Beyond that, then, uh, I, I really started getting into fantasy. You know, I'd found uh, some fantasy authors in the library and in the local bookstores that just captured my imagination. And I, between the ages of about uh, 11 and 14, I think I read pretty much every fantasy book that the library had to offer. And it was actually at that point when I had exhausted the library's uh, uh, fantasy that I, I began writing my own. Because at the time, I, I sort of had the feeling that if the library didn't have a book, then it wasn't really a book, you know? So it must have all the fantasy that existed. And, and well, what am I going to do, do now? You know, I just read it all. Uh, well, the answer is write your own.
0: Tell, tell me which fantasy, the very first fantasy that, that caught your imagination and made you say, wow, I really like this. I want to read more.
1: Most people wouldn't classify it as a fantasy, but it was La de Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory. Oh, certainly. And the beginning of Sword and Sorcery. <laughs> exactly. I didn't I think I read it between nine, when I was between nine and ten, and I didn't understand all of it. The language, of course, was very very dense and very complicated, not to mention arcane, but it just captured my imagination you know it was you know swords and and sword fighting and, and damsels in distress and knights and kings and uh, it was high adventure of of the truest form and after reading that then i started digging into more modern fantasy and i haven't stopped since
0: tell me lots of kids at this age you know there's a break between science fiction and fantasy and you you've definitely hit the fantasy side why did you what Did you find more appealing about fantasy than science fiction?
1: Well, I have read a huge amount of science fiction as well, um, and that's partly my father's influence because he is a big science fiction buff, and I am a big fan of science fiction as well. I think the reason I chose to write fantasy, though, and the reason that I read probably 70% more fantasy than science fiction is that in some ways fantasy almost is historical. You know, it speaks about things that came before us. Sure, it may have elements that don't actually exist, such as dragons or monsters or magic, but the settings of many fantasy novels are historical, and that just appeals to my personality. Also, a lot of fantasy tends to be written as a coming-of-age story, and I was reading these novels when I myself was coming-of-age, and there was certainly an appeal there. Science fiction, on the other hand, oftentimes tends to be a perhaps a little bit more cerebral. Not always, but uh, there are certainly uh, plenty of cases like that. And I, at that time, I wanted to read something that I felt um, spoke to me about my own life and, you know, stories of uh, young men and young women getting thrust out into the world and having to uh, grow up and take on responsibilities of their own and fighting off monsters at the same time, that that definitely appealed to me.
0: Tell me a little bit about w- when you s- decided to start writing, just first writing, and when you decided to actually sit down and tackle things that you wanted other people to read.
1: There was never a d- dividing line, and there still isn't. Um, I started Aragon with the intent of writing a practice book, if you will, just seeing if I could write a book at all. And my only goal was to try and please myself and hopefully my parents, if they, you know, if they actually read it. I never intended, or I never thought the book was going to be published. And I certainly never thought it would be turned into a movie eventually. And I try to take that attitude with my writing to this very day. I try to write stories that I care about and that I find important. And I don't I don't sit down to write thinking oh I need to write a book that's going to sell thousands and thousands of copies because that's the wrong attitude to take. Um, You know I am I am aware that there's a you know that there are people who have read the books and enjoyed the books and have certain expectations for the next book and that certainly gives me a sense of responsibility toward uh, continuing the series but I don't Approach my writing with a sense that uh, oh, I have to please anyone else beside myself or my family.
0: When you started writing Aragon, did you know? Do you know what the end of the series is? Did you know? Did you have a map for the series? Did you, or did you just plunge into it from you know writing in the beginning?
1: I had. <laughs> it's funny you ask that question because I tried writing a number of stories before Aragon. And those stories I plunged into, as you, as you say, and it would prove disastrous for me. If I sit down to write without knowing what's supposed to happen throughout the story, it's a recipe for instant writer's block for me. So before I started Aragon, I spent almost a month and plotted out the entire trilogy start to finish. So I've known the very—I've known, even before I started Aragon, I knew what the very last scene of the very last book was going to be and how it was going to play. Uh, and it's a way of just keeping myself on track.
0: And, and you you plan on getting there in the, in the specified number of books, a trilogy. Is that correct?
1: That's the idea, although, boy, this third book just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, but, no, I do know how it ends um, because the way I feel is— A good story needs a good ending, and if you start a series and there is no ending and it just continues indefinitely, then you're, in a certain way, you're cheating your reader because, you know, you need an ending. At least (laughs) that's how I felt when I was reading fantasy.
0: Tell me, well, what fantasies made you feel that way?
1: Fantasies that uh, continued past six books without resolving. Let's put it that way. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Harry Potter
0: excluded. So... You've outlined the whole trilogy. You've started writing Aragon. Did you write it on a computer, or did you handwrite it? Or, I mean, how old were you really when you started? Sat down, put the pen to paper, put your fingers on the keypad. Do you remember? Or, or?
1: I do. I do. I had I had graduated slash finished high school when I was when I just turned fifteen. I mean, literally, I turned the uh, I had sent in the last exam right when I turned fifteen. And since my birthday is late in the year in November, I spent the last few uh, months of that year, which was 1998, working out the plot for Aragon and then actually starting Aragon in uh, December of 98, I believe. I didn't know how to type at the time, so I wrote the first 60 pages of Aragon longhand in a notebook. And then I typed that into a computer, and by the time I got through those 60 pages, I sure knew how to type— so I then continued with uh, the rest of the book on the computer, uh, and to, at this at the moment I sort of alternate between writing by hand and writing by the computer, uh, just depending on how I how I feel at the moment.
0: So you finished the book. You've got this this honking computer file. How many words is it? I, I...
1: Uh, the first draft, or well, actually, the first draft of Aragon was slightly shorter than the second draft. Uh, the second draft, which is what it went into editing clocked in around 180,000 words. And to give you a little bit of perspective, my second book ran or runs about 220,000 words. So they're both big books, but the second one was definitely the bigger of the two.
0: So you've got this book. Who edited it? Who did the first draft? Did you edit it? Did you hand it to, to, to mom or dad and say, here, read this? Or had they been reading it?
1: No, I didn't let them read them read it at all when I was working on it. Um, I, I finished the first... They knew what I was working on, but I, I just didn't want to show it to anyone until it was as good as I could make it. So I wrote the first draft pretty much in secrecy, and that took me a, almost a year. At the end of the first draft, I sat down, I read the book through, and was rather horrified by what, it, what I discovered um, because the story was there, but the writing itself needed needed some work. So I spent a second year, rewrote the book, keeping the story but fleshing out the dialogue and the characters. And as I rewrote it, I passed pages and chapters to my parents. And fortunately for me, they fell in love with the uh, with the manuscript, with the story. And then they helped me edit the book after that second draft.
0: Now, were you doing anything else while you are writing? I mean, you know, you're 15 years old. You know, get a job. <laughs>
1: Uh well that was the big question actually when I graduated from high school was what was I going to do um you know getting a job is diff- was was difficult uh, my parents didn't f- didn't feel comfortable sending me off to college at 15 which I think was a wise choice uh and and I was really fortunate because I really didn't have the responsibilities that a lot of people have at that age and I was free to try and basically to do the one thing that uh, you know I I tell a lot of people this you know if you have a moment or a time in your life where nothing is required of you, the thing that you end up doing in that period of time is probably the thing that you should be doing as a living, if possible, because uh, it's, it's probably the thing that you love the most. And in my case, it was writing. Uh, I was doing some other things when I worked on the first draft because I didn't realize that writing was going to become my profession. So I... I built myself an easel. I was making knives and swords. Um, I was always had other projects going on. As I continued with Aragon, though, I put more and more of my time into the book. As I began to realize that, you know, I actually have a book here, and well, I'm going to try and get it published. And it, it sort of took over my life and has remained the central focus of my life ever since.
0: Tell us a little bit about getting published. Did you try to send this out to to publishers, to agents?
1: No. My parents had done a fair amount of research on the publishing industry, and uh, the problem is, is, you know, I'd spent a couple of years on the manuscript at that point, and to then submit the manuscript to an agent, and then for an agent to submit the manuscript to a publisher is a very slow process. I mean, we're talking, you know, multiple months for each submission, and possibly years to to get a manuscript accepted, if it ever is accepted. So we instead of waiting all that you know all that time and also you know maybe not finding a publisher who would really care for the book the way we felt it should be cared for we decided that we would self publish the book and see if we could make a go of it as a as a family business so we spent a, that a third year uh editing the book and preparing it for publication and that involved, uh, you know, getting all the pages to look right and arranging the text just right and picking a font and figuring out, you know, you know how, how small could we make the font so we didn't have to pay for printing too many pages, uh, drawing the, the dragon eye that went on the cover of the book. Uh, that was something I did. Uh, drawing the maps for the book and basically just trying to make a professional package so that people wouldn't laugh when they saw the book saying, oh, look at that look at that self-published book. Uh and then yeah, we sent the book off to a um a, a print on demand company and a few weeks later we we got that first copy of Aragon.
0: Who who yeah. did you use as your print on demand company?
1: Uh it was a subsidiary of Ingram, which is a oh, large sure. book distributor in fact, and the the reason we used this print on demand company is that by because it was a subsidiary of Ingram, the book was then listed uh, in every bookstore in the country and also on amazon.com so that way it was very easy for us to get orders around the country and also to get the books shipped uh wherever we needed them to uh so it was it was it was a big process then you know we after we got the book we all sat around the kitchen table and we looked at each other and we said well now what you know well then no one what? knows <laughs> that's right you know no no one knew who i was no one knew about the book um and what we ended up doing was going to local schools and libraries and I would do a presentation in medieval costume uh which was interesting <laughs> <laughs> um I would do a presentation and uh you know we started getting local press on uh you know for example uh, Yellowstone Public Radio and in the papers and and news and and magazines of the area and before I knew it, um, word of mouth started taking off, and I ended up traveling from Montana to Texas to Washington State and many places in between doing presentations in the schools and libraries.
0: Okay, so you've got the self-published book, and there are piles of it around your house. You're, you're crawling around piles of your own book. And how did you make that next step up to Knopf? <laughs> it, it, it we had reached the point
1: where uh because we so many people had heard about the book after the first year where we where I was traveling around that uh we were be- we were beginning to look at thinking about hiring uh, a book distributor to handle the sales for us because it was more than our family could handle. Uh, our our house had turned into a warehouse at that point. We have pictures of our living room with stacks of books just almost to the ceiling, you know, thousands of books in the house, uh, which was fun, but it gets, gets old after uh, a few months. Uh, so what happened, though, was I was in Seattle in uh, October of 2000, 2002, I believe, and we received an email completely out of, out of the blue from my editor-to-be at Knopf saying that they wanted to buy the entire trilogy. And it turns out what happened was the Random House author, uh, Carl Hyacin, uh, who wrote the children's book Hoot and, and many others, he had been vacationing in Montana, uh, fly fishing, and his then 12-year-old stepson, Ryan, picked up a copy of Aragon at a local bookstore, read it, and loved it so much that his dad recommended it to Random House, uh, who contacted me about three months later so it was it was a wonderful combination of about ninety percent hard work and ten percent incredible luck
0: this is a a classic American success story. congratulations
1: <laughs> thank you well it you know it makes a great story after the fact uh-huh but okay. when <laughs> when you're living through it it's pretty nerve wracking because uh in that year it took to prepare the book for publication my parents weren't working at any other jobs and weren't receiving, you know, the income they would have otherwise. So let me put it this way. I mean, if the book had taken another few months to start turning a profit, we were all going to have to sell our house, move to a big city, and all get regular jobs. So we we really, as they say, you know, bet the farm on it.
0: Well, and you won. Let's talk a little bit about the fantasy genre. What do you think makes good fantasy writing. I mean, is it do you have prose, character settings what? It what varies. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> who, who do you like? I mean, what are your what do you count as your influences? The top say 5 authors. Top 5
1: authors. Um, top 5 authors. Uh Dune by Frank Herbert, um his Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman, Magician by Raymond E. Feist. A Wizard of Earthsea trilogy by Ursula K. Le Guin, and, of course, Lord of the Rings. Um, That's a small list, mind you. I could keep going with several others, I believe, are equally as important as any of those. Uh, I think the thing with the fantasy genre is people sometimes think, oh, it's all swords and sorcery, it's hacking and slashing, but it's not. It's such a wide genre. Whatever type of fiction you as a reader may enjoy, you can usually find that sort of fiction within the fantasy genre. I mean, there are detective novels within the fantasy genre. There are noirs, there are romances, there are fantasies written as as historical fiction. Um, So there really is a very broad spectrum to choose from. I myself am really drawn to, uh, I guess, the epic fantasy. I really enjoy reading authors who are exceptional craftsmen with the language. So authors such as um, E.R. Edison, who wrote The Worm Ouroboros, Uh, The Gormengoss Trilogy by Mervyn Peake, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, Uh, pieces of work where uh, sometimes the language is even more important than the story. That's, of course, my personal taste. My sister, on the other hand, uh, reads fantasy that is uh, completely different and uh, equally as good, but something for everyone.
0: One of the things that's striking about this book is the landscape of the book, and I'd like you to talk about how the landscape where you live informed the landscape you created in the world of Allegasia.
1: If I had lived in a city, I might still have written fantasy, but I think it would have been a very different sort of fantasy than I I wrote, uh, (laughs) that I actually did write. Um, I mean, every day when I get up and I look out the front window of my room, I see the Beartooth Mountains, and I get to watch the sun rising over them and the sun setting over them. I've hiked and I've climbed in those mountains and camped there. Uh, I've gotten to watch, you know, the the wildlife in the area, which is amazing. And all of that, I think, has helped give me a feel for uh, Aragon's world and what would make Aragon's world real and the things that he might see when he's out hunting or farming or whatever the case may be. I love the natural world, and I love describing it. In fact, there's a scene in my second book where Aragon and Sephira are, are flying to this location, and they land on the side of a mountain, and they land on this field of, of loose rock, uh, Scree, and it's all covered with orange lichen. And in the center of this field of Scree, there's a, there's a dead tree that's been killed by lightning. And this is a place that I actually saw in the real world when I was hiking two years ago, and it was so striking, and it was just so wonderful that I, I put it in my second book. And there are plenty of things like that in in both my books.
0: Now you're writing e- books for young adults, but they actually have a, an appeal to adults too. And I wonder if you'd care to talk about creating stories that that appeal to that are accessible to, to to younger readers, but appeal to older readers as well.
1: I didn't set out to write a young adult novel. I was trying to write the best novel I could. Uh, in fact, with Aragon, I was writing up as far as I could if that makes sense. I viewed my age as a liability at that time, and I figured that you know I, I should try to make the book as accomplished as I could um, so that people would take it seriously. Th- uh, so then, you know so I never said, well, I'm going to put this in or I'm going to put that in to make it appeal to one age group or another. I do think that the story itself, a coming of age story, makes the books uh, accessible to teenagers, pre-teenagers. But, um, you know, I do also think then some of the other story elements appeal to older audiences. And there are plenty of people of any ages who enjoy reading a coming-of-age story or a fantasy novel. Um, But also, you know, in his adventures, Aragon deals with some of the larger questions in life. You know, what is he doing? Uh, Why is he here? How can he live honorably uh, in a world where he has to fight and kill? And those are questions that many people in our world, adults and young adults, deal with, um, unfortunately, all too regularly.
0: The, this last uh, issue you talked about, why does he have to fight and kill, this is kind of interesting because uh, we both read a lot of fantasy, and a lot of fantasy is essentially one endless massacre <laughs> <laughs> and nobody asks any questions. They hack and slash. You read uh, Robert E. Howard, Conan. You you read J.R. R. Tolkien. They hack and slash their way through, you know, more bodies than you know you're going to see in a, in a lifetime. And, and they never wonder about it. And, and the first, one of the first things that that uh, Aragon does is to to you know really question somebody who beheads uh, an enemy. And I thought this was really interesting. So tell me, why did you? make him have qualms about killing. Why not just, you know, they're enemies. You, you, you stab them, you go on to the next one. Mm-hmm. It's like a role-playing game.
1: I think there are three approaches you can take to violence in, in fantasy, epic fantasy like this. I mean, everyone will have a slightly different uh, approach to it, but the three main ones that I've seen are you can write your characters uh, in a detached manner. That is, perhaps they've seen so much of violence, they've been exposed to so much violence, uh and, and you know, early human life and even some of modern life is very violent and can cause people to, you know, to behave like that. They turn their emotions off. So you can write stories where people are hacking and slashing and it doesn't seem to affect them. But then you should make a point of explaining, you know, why they're behaving the way they're behaving. There's an excellent series of military science fiction called Hammers Slammers by um I forget the name David of the author Drake. right now. David Drake, yes. And he, his work epitomizes that sort of detached approachment to violence. It's still horrific, the violence, but it is, uh, you know, it's a different viewpoint on it. Or you can take the more heroic standpoint where our heroes are supposed to be human, but uh, the violence doesn't seem to affect them one way or another. And that's actually a sort of a traditional viewpoint. Uh, and it certainly is valid, but I felt that to not address the issues of violence, especially when people are literally cutting each other apart with swords, is to be ignoring part of what makes us human and part of what will contribute to an interesting story. Uh, You know, you like to think that as a hero that uh, you can go in and you'll fight the battle and you'll kill the bad guy and you'll just feel a sense of having done the right thing. You know, I've rid the world of an evil, evil creature. But the truth of the matter is you can't do something like that and come out unaffected. Uh, it is something that will will change even a hero.
0: And makes a more interesting story.
1: And makes a more interesting story. I mean, a character like uh, Conan the Barbarian, for example, he's a bit of a one-note character. He's fun to read, I think. Uh, and I, I enjoy some of uh, Howard's writing. But at the same time, I wouldn't ever say that he feels completely human because he is so... Uh, you know, uh, immune to violence, I guess.
0: One of the things you do in this book, and, I, and you make the choice to basically include a lot of the fantasy tropes we we see often. We've got dragons, elves, magic, dwarves. You've got ergles, which translate roughly to orcs. You've got Razak. Raza- Razak? Razak. Razak, riders, evil kings. I mean, so you've got all these fantasy tropes that fantasy wide open. Why did you decide to, to stick with the classics? <laughs>
1: <laughs> because they were what I, I loved reading growing up. And, and the thing is, is if you try to take a completely different approach, which some authors have and have succeeded wonderfully, you'll end up with something that perhaps will not resonate as well uh, with the reader readers. I mean, there is a reason that stories of young men overthrowing evil kings have been a staple of fiction since the very first uh, stories were ever written down or were ever told around campfires. There's a reason you always have the element of the old mentor guiding the young hero and teaching the, the young hero. And the thing is, is these are also parts of people's real world experiences. You know, as you're growing up, you do have people who teach you how to behave and how to grow up and what's right and what's wrong. And I think every young person at one time or another feels as if, uh, you know, it, you need to have a quest, some way of something to accomplish that lets you know that, yes, you have become an adult, you have grown up. In my case, it was writing my books. In Aragon's case, it's fighting an evil king and uh, and defeating his minions. But uh, no, I, I deliberately chose to use the elements that I enjoyed in other fantasy books, as you said, dwarves and elves and dragons. And my hope was that I would be able to at least bring uh, somewhat of a unique perspective to those that would, uh, you know, allow the readers to enjoy them.
0: One of the things that, that you do is we, you've got the, uh, really great dragon characters, of Sephira. So tell us how you create a dragon character that... You know, is something that a human can read about, but is clearly not human itself.
1: That's a difficult question. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to explain my approach to Sephira. When I started writing her, when she first, first hatches in in Aragon, I never intended to have her become sentient. Oh, However, really? At, you didn't? No, I didn't. Um, wow. You know, because <laughs> I didn't, but. As she was growing up, and as her, her mental link with Aragon strengthens over the course of the book, I finally realized that if she were that linked with Aragon, she would have to be intelligent, and so would the other dragons. And eventually, of course, the scene happens in the first book where she says Aragon's name, and all of a sudden, you know, as a reader and as an author, you know, everyone realizes, oh my god, you know, she can speak! She's intelligent! Uh... It's, uh, but the approach I've taken toward her character is to sort of view her as a combination of Aragorn's best friend and protector, uh, and sometimes a bit of a, a, a mother figure for him at times, uh, but also f- mentally I think of her as a combination between like a cat and a falcon. You know, she can be very almost cuddly at times, she can be very sweet, she can be very caring, and yet you never forget that she's a predator, and she uh if she doesn't like she like you she'll as soon as uh, bite off your head as look at you and part of my uh ability to 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 write about that i think comes from having grown up around animals and with cats and watching uh the wild animals you know eat and hunt and that sort of thing
0: lots of uh uh fantasy authors who write about dragons use their relationships with animals as kind of templates. And so you've got cat and falcon. I was wondering, what about uh, horses or dogs? What other animals did you draw into this? And could you talk a little bit about this idea of a telepathic bond?
1: Well, the telepathic bond seems necessary to me because if the dragon is going to be intelligent, then the dragon needs a way to communicate. And since I didn't want to have, you know, the sort of the Disney film version where the dragon is actually moving its jaws and lips. That just seemed ridiculous to me. Telepathy was the only, uh, sort of the only way out. Uh, I know in the Anne McCaffrey books, for example, she has, it's more of an empathic bond between the dragons and, and her dragon riders. You know, there isn't actually phrases or paragraphs being exchanged, although they, they still understand each other very well. Uh, for me, so that, so for me, words seemed to be the best approach telepathy seemed to be the best approach um i really didn't think of other animals riding a dragon you know a dragon to me seems so fierce so proud so so noble and beautiful and terrifying and dangerous at the same time uh it's rather ridiculous to compare one to a horse uh, in fact i know that if i if sapphira were here listening to me she would be incredibly insulted if i uh, compared her to a horse uh, as she refers to one of them in uh uh one of the books as uh, silly deer animals
0: one of the things you do too that i think that's pretty interesting for for a fantasy novel is you follow this uh telepathy uh, it it almost seemed like as a writer you you realize that once you had telepathy oh my god now i've got to deal with it anybody could have telepathy and, and so tell us a little bit did you plan that as part of the plot of the novel because humans have it and it it becomes in you know a plot issue a plot point
1: no i hadn't I hadn't planned on making it such a big issue, but that's one of the great things about um, doing a fantasy, or at least it's one of the necessities of doing a fantasy, is that if you are being honest about what's going on in your world, then you have to keep asking questions about, well, if this is possible, how does this affect the social structure? How does this affect uh, the way people behave, you know, their abilities, etc.? Originally, you're right. I just had telepathy between Safira and Aragorn, and I thought, well, that'll be the end of it. But then you have to ask yourself, well, if Aragorn can touch Safira's mind, can he touch a horse's mind? Or can he touch another person's mind? Or, well, what if they can go into his mind and read his thoughts? Well, then what kind of precautions do you have to take? Uh, and I, I worked out the same line of questioning with uh, magic as well, a larger issues of magic, you know, well, if people can, well, for example, if people can use magic, then they could, uh, they could, you know, they could, they could imitate, they could counterfeit uh, the, the currency of the realm. So you would have to take precautions about against, you know, however you minted your coins, there would have to be spells to protect the currency. Uh, you know, just endless, endless issues. In fact, that's one of the things that has irritated me with some fantasy novels, where you have characters using magic and yet they never seem to use magic right when they really ought to in order to get them out of that terrible trap that they just walked into. Um, and I have a lot of fun thinking about these things. To me, it keeps the world interesting.
0: One of the things that it struck me was that the relationship between the dragon and the writers that, that telepathic relationship, it it kind of mirrors the relationship between the reader and the writer. I, when I'm reading your book, I, hey, I'm reading your mind.
1: That's right. And... In a way, it's 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 you know novels have always are always been a been a form of allowing uh, the readers to get inside the heads of other of other people. You know, it's almost a form of telepathy in and of itself. And so, what I what Aragon's bond with Sephira does is it allows one more jump instead of just uh, instead of the reader just having access to Aragon's thoughts. Now you have access to Sephira's thoughts as well. Uh and one of the outcomes of this of course is because their minds are so closely linked they begin to grow ever closer you know uh you know you think about it if you have a another being or creature who can feel and hear and and, and experience everything that you experience and vice versa that will forge a sort of bond between the two of you probably stronger than anything uh anything that exists in this world today
0: it's very much like a, a chaste love affair in some ways, It marriage. is.
1: <laughs> it is. And, in fact, in the second book, when Aragon begins to take a few tentative stabs at uh, romance on his own, Safira basically comes back to him and, and, you know, gives him a little talking to and tells him, you know, well, sure, I want you to be happy, but... Uh, anyone you happen to fall in love with, or anytime you have those sorts of feelings for someone else, that's going to affect me as well because I'm inside your head all day, and you're inside my head, and we we just can't get away from that.
0: One of the things that 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 happens in this book is, of course, a, a Aragon falls in love, and you know experiences you know the the onset of, of sexuality, at, which presumably also happened to you as you you are writing it. So could you talk a little bit about writing about things that were really happening to you that are difficult to articulate?
1: The books, as I sort of said before, were my way of growing up. Uh, They were a way for me to explain the world to myself and explain what was happening to me as I was growing up. So, you know, yes. I mean, as as Aragon is growing up and he, you know, falling in love is part of growing up. So that I mean that has to be part of the story at least. It was from uh, that from my point of view, it was a necessary part of the story. Um obviously what I experienced in my own life informed the approach I took to the story. Uh but it wasn't you know, it wasn't a one-to-one correlation. Uh, Aragon's circumstances are not my own in many cases. You don't have a dragon? Unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately not. (laughs) Uh, I think dragons would would cause a few more problems than people think if they were in the real world. Um, So, no, it's not a one-to-one correlation. But, yeah, I mean, there are pieces here and there throughout the books where, you know, things that perhaps actually happened to me or were inspired by something that happened to me and then I I work them into the story. And I think it gives it a, a greater... Resonance than it would have otherwise.
0: Dragons are are, are often seen, you know, as symbols. Um, For example, we've got Milton writing about, you know, Lucifer in Paradise Lost, the great dragon. It becomes the most interesting character in the story. And and I'm wondering what you think of dragons as a symbol of.
1: Well, they're very powerful symbols. And for a long time in Western culture, they were a symbol of evil because... uh, Christianity really took that symbol of a dragon and used it for Satan. Um, and also, you know, in the in the Nordic cultures, uh, dragons were often seen as, you know, bringers of pestilence or evil. And there, of course, is the Midgard serpent, which uh, is going to bring about Ragnarok at the end of time with the destruct- destruction of the world. Uh, but on the other hand, there's sort of the view of the, the Asian dragons, which are often uh, very, very good and beneficial and, and not evil at all. I think the view of dragons in Western culture has certainly changed in the past hundred years or so. You know, a lot of fantasy writers have uh, chosen to explore dragons as non-evil characters, but they are enormously powerful as symbols. And whenever you have a dragon show up in a story, you really have to think about why is it there and what is it going to stand for? uh you know, in my in my books I think the dragons really represent the land itself in many ways. You know, the land is is not in a very good state in Aragon's time, and neither are the dragons. They're all pretty much all wiped out. And one of Aragon's goals is not only to uh to free the land, but hopefully save the dragons from extinction. And that link between dragons and the land itself is a very old one. And you can even find it, for example, in Beowulf, where uh, you know, at the end of Beowulf, the king has to go fight a, a dragon who represents, you know, this evil within his own kingdom, this evil within the bones of the land itself. And uh, of course, that's that's his downfall in that story.
0: You mentioned magic. And one of the things I think you do that's interesting, and I, this kind of comes back to the telepathic bonds and the reader and the writer, is in your world, the Language is magic. Language is the source of magic. And that tells me something about how you hold storytelling itself.
1: Words are power. I mean, words are the way we communicate. Words represent things to us. Uh, And actually, in ancient cultures, for many times, words were considered magic. Uh, So to me, it was a very natural step to take, a natural attitude to take. Uh, It's not a new one necessarily, but it it feels right to me. Uh, and I've, I've sort of continued to de- develop that concept over the course of the trilogy.
0: One of the things I really liked about this book is it, it's action-packed. I mean, it, the, the, the action never stops, and it's really things keep popping. A- and you put your characters, I found several times, into positions of real peril. And I'm going, well, how is he going to get his character out of this one? And so I'm wondering, when you put your characters into this peril, do you know in advance how they're going to get out?
1: I usually do. <laughs> uh, there have been a few times I haven't, and I've then stalked around the house for a couple of days saying, uh-oh. Uh, one of the most difficult things, actually, is if you have a character who can use magic, you, you really get a big problem then of how do you uh, capture slash uh, uh, impair slash kill Someone who can use magic, someone who with a word can uh, sever an artery in your head or something or, uh, you know, snap, a, snap someone's neck. Uh, so I've spent a lot more time actually thinking about how to get Aragon into trouble than out of trouble. Uh, that's one reason why in the first book he actually gets knocked out a couple of times simply because there really is no other safe way to deal with a magician. You know, you just can't have one laying around in a, in a prison cell or something. They're,
0: uh, they're too dangerous. Uh, I thought one of the things that was interesting that you did was that uh, you drug him, And that's something that you might not have, you know, an author maybe 50 years ago, you might not have thought of.
1: Well, again, it just, I couldn't think of any other options. Again, if you have a magician uh, tied up in the basement, as soon as he regains consciousness, he's going to uh, whisper a word or, uh, you know, work a little bit of, uh, work a spell, and you're going to be in very, very big trouble. And you know the, the thing is also that in the in both Aragon and Eldest, the the King Galbatorix and his various servants aren't trying to kill Aragon, and that's a thing. Um, you know, Aragon slowly comes to realize over the course of the story. You know, what you know, Safira is the last female dragon. They want to get Safira. They want to. Uh, sort of re-bring back the dragon riders and bring them under the control of Galbatoric. So they're not trying to kill Aragorn. So if you're not trying to kill him and you still need to grab hold of him and he can use magic, what do you do? And so drugging, again, seemed uh, just seemed practical.
0: One of the things, you have lots of characters who are old and there's different kinds of old too. You have characters who are old, characters who are mature, and characters who are literally ancient. You, on the other hand, are not old. Tell me how you write about characters who are old when you are not old, and do you get advice?
1: Well, maybe that's a reflection of my childhood because the majority of the people I was around growing up were older than me. Uh, My parents, of course, but a lot of the kids that I was around were older than me. Um, So that's sort of a reflection of how my own life has been in some ways. Uh, You know, I really don't know if there's any way that any human can can maybe completely understand how a car- how a person who has been alive for hundreds of years might think and act uh there just has never been anyone alive a human that's lived that long uh so in in that way i you know i don't think i don't feel as if i can go and uh, ask anyone for advice on that point but um you know i i talk to my mom i talk to my dad sometimes i'll ask them you know what they think of a certain story point from their point of view and um you know i just i just try to remember that uh the characters i'm writing about have their own feelings and their own uh agendas however old they may they may be you know they there are things that they want to
0: accomplish as well it was. It's been what seven, almost eight years since you started writing Aragon. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you presumably gotten better as a writer. So tell me how you feel as you look back. I mean, you've already had a career that, as a writer, that many people would 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 you know have sold their souls for, and and we're presuming that you haven't done so. So tell us how you look back on you know your more youthful writing, and, and do you? What do you see for yourself in the future as a writer?
1: Well, looking back on Aragon, uh, I know the biggest struggle I had with Aragon was with, was with the technical side of writing. I never really had any trouble with the story. Um, I always had the story. I always felt as if I knew what I was doing with the story. Whether that's true or not is debatable, but uh, it, it was it was learning how to manipulate the ancient language that really gave me trouble, Uh, with my first book. And uh, that's something that I really worked on with the editing and with the rewriting on Aragon. with eldest. Then I tried to put to use everything I had learned about writing in the first book and then to challenge myself by trying things that I hadn't tried before in Aragon, such as switching point of view, um, you know, experimenting with prose, you know, having some, some poetry and riddles and that sort of thing in the second book. And now with the third book, I'm again uh, trying to challenge myself and attempting things that I haven't tried before. And I, I hope to continue doing that in, throughout the rest of my career. Uh, I love telling stories, and I want to continue doing so as long as I can.
0: What can you tell us about the third book? When do we expect it, and do we know what, a ti- what the title is yet? Well, I know what the title is, um, but I'm afraid
1: I can't tell anyone. Uh, I, I mean, well, I could tell you, but uh random house wants to make a they want to make a nice little event out of revealing the title of the third book uh and it's as far as when it's going to be done um it's going to be done as soon as i can finish it (laughs) Uh, that's that's about the best timetable i can give you Uh, i can tell you though it's going to have a beautiful emerald green dragon on the cover
0: and done no doubt by jude palancar that's right. You That's do a, right. a bit of name checking in the book too. I noticed that one of the that uh, our hero comes from the land of Palankar. And, and was that was that name checking the the famous artist?
1: It was. In fact, the funny thing is, uh, you know, because I I draw and I I paint a bit myself. So when I started Aragon, uh, I, I was a big fan of Palankar's, So I named Aragon's valley palancar Valley, and the funny thing is is when Random House acquired Aragon, without telling me and without knowing any of this, that's exactly who they chose to paint the covers for the trilogy. So it was really a wonderful coincidence.
0: Tell us a little bit, one of the things that the events that you've got to live through, which many people, again, would have probably sold their soul to do so, is to see your book turn into a movie. How, do you feel, how did you feel? How much involvement did you have in the movie?
1: well i didn't make the movie myself and it uh you know it ref- it reflects the filmmaker's vision of the story uh but i have to say the the day when i first saw the movie was one of the strangest and most exciting <laughs> days of my life uh to sit there and hear the characters on the screen uh, you know re- reciting lines right from the book at times just put chills down my spine uh, it was like stepping into the twilight zone um, so my my hope is, and, and I also, you know, and I think that the, the lead actors, uh, Jeremy Irons and Ed Spallier, I th- think they both did very good jobs in the movie. And, uh, you know, my hope is that people who liked the book will like the movie and vice versa, that the movie will bring new readers to the series.
0: I, I have to ask you, how much are first editions of the self-published uh, version of your book going for now?
1: Um, one sent, set a record. uh set a record on eBay this year for this, the, the most expensive single purchase of a book on eBay this year, and it was uh, $9,800, I believe. Wow. Boy, that's yes. great. I, to, to be honest with you, if I, if I could, be, could have been selling them for that much back when we started out, I'd still be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so.
0: so. We've been speaking with Christopher Paolini. His new book is Eldest. His book, Aragon is now a movie. Thanks for speaking with me, Chris. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews and book commentary 5 days a week at trashotron.com/agony